From WXCI 91.7 in Danbury, this is The Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, and reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo. Welcome to The Public Reading Club on WXCI 91.7 from Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut. I'm your host, Matt Caputo, and welcome to our second episode. Um, Thank you for tuning in to the first episode we had with Paul Cantor, author of Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller. It was really great to get uh, a lot of feedback from uh, some people who heard the show, and we're very close now to having uh, all of our shows up and running on Spotify. So we're going to begin archiving... uh, the first show there on all the podcast platforms and uh, we'll have this show which is going to feature interviews with Anthony DeHarris who is an associate professor and MFA coordinator here at WestCon and a graduate of the MFA program Brianna McGuckin who is the author of the gothic suspense novel On Good Authority which uh, has done really well since its release and we're really happy to have both of them Uh, with us today on this show. Anthony is a fantastic writer of fiction, and uh, he's an essayist and memoirist. And Brianna is a really fantastic writer who has uh, created such a great story with On Good Authority that I kind of actually got myself caught up into um, when I read it. So I'm going to let them speak about, you know, what's going on with them and their initiatives uh, mostly. But it's great to have everyone who's been tuning into the Public Reading Club. You can follow us on Facebook now. You can follow us on Instagram. We're going to be up on Twitter uh, very soon. And we're hoping to hear from more authors. Today we got our very first completely unsolicited pitch from a PR person who uh, was representing an author with a new book. And seeing that it was the very first pitch from a PR person, completely unsolicited, I'll repeat, uh, I just thought it was good, you know, a good vibe to uh, allow that person to uh, send me more information about the author they were representing. And I think I will have them on the show, but I'll leave that for a little further down the line. We, we got some great um, response. We'll also have Peter Blauner coming on the show, who is the author of the fantastic new book, Picture in the Sand. And I'm very excited for that interview. He'll be coming into our studios here at WXEI. Um, it's great to have him uh, supporting the show. If you want to follow us again, check out the Instagram at Public Reading Club on Instagram. So at Public Reading Club. And we are also on Facebook now. We're growing, and it's really been exciting just to get this show off the ground. I love books. I love hearing about books. Without further ado, we're going to start the interviews and uh, hope you enjoy learning more about writing, not only in general, but writing here at Western Connecticut State University on campus and within the MFA program. So we're going to start it off with Anthony Dieras, who is associate professor here at WestCon, the MFA coordinator here, and he's also a published memoirist and a really fantastic writer of short fiction. He's been published in McSweeney's and uh, several other places. So I uh, hope you enjoy our chat with Anthony Dieras. 
Hey guys, I'm Constance Wu from the movie Crazy Rich Asians, and I love libraries because they help readers from all walks of life access smart, funny, engaging books featuring diverse characters. Promote inclusion in literature by supporting your library. Hello, I'm Emilio Estevez. I wrote and directed my new film, The Public, because I'm passionate about the role of libraries in our communities and in our democracy. Public libraries are free to all, but they need your support. So visit, volunteer, advocate, and make some noise. Go to ilovelibraries.org to learn more. Welcome back to 91.7 WXEI and Danbury and streaming on WXEI.org. Our guest this morning on the Public Reading Club is Anthony Dieris, Associate Professor and Coordinator of the MFA in Professional and Creative Writing here at Western Connecticut State. Anthony, thanks for coming to the studio. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to bring you on today to give an overview of what the program actually offers to our listeners out here. Obviously, uh, we don't know how many people are listening yet, but we hope some are. <laughs> and if they're interested in writing, they might be interested in the MFA. Could you explain how it works, what you need to get um, admission to the MFA, what the requirements are, and, and maybe the course of study? Sure. Um, so we are a low residency MFA program in creative and professional writing. And what a low residency program is, is um, students are based all over the country, all over the world. Um, they're working individually with professional writers in their genres during the semester. And so that could be fiction, poetry, screenwriting, um, memoir, personal essay. Um, and they're also working in a professional genre like <clears throat> grant writing or copywriting, um, speech writing, those kinds of things. The first week in January and the first week in August, we all get together either in Danbury or um, at the Highlights Retreat Center in the Pocono Mountains or in Dublin, Ireland for our residencies. And the residency is basically like a week-long writers conference where we have visiting writers come and uh, students are presenting their, uh, their projects and reading from their final thesis. Um, and it's kind of like a intense writers boot camp for a week. Um, and because of that model, we're able to attract a wide range of students. So we have students who are in their 20s all the way up through their 80s, um, backgrounds in writing and literature, but also uh, law and business and biology and science, all kinds of different backgrounds, which makes the group very kind of eclectic and uh, uh, a strong community. Um, and so anybody can apply. Um, we look mostly at writing samples is the most important piece of the application. Um, not necessarily whether or not they've been published authors already, but that they have some kind of direction for their work and they're showing um, some promise and ability and focus in their writing. So that's, that's kind of the big things that we're looking for. Um, and it's all, you know, it's for students who are looking to change careers, uh, folks who are looking to spend more time with their writing that they haven't in the past. Um, it's a very kind of inclusive, uh, open program that's, there's a lot of opportunity there. Something I wanted to ask you is, can you talk a little bit about um, the students who have come to the program with a 
essentially a basic idea for a book and how many, not really a question of how many of them, but can, the ones that stand out to you who've actually published the idea that they started with? Because I know mm -hmm. that ideas change often yeah. in the MFA program. Somebody who kind of went the whole distance, does anybody stand out in your mind? Yeah, I mean, most recently, um, and I think you're you're talking with her soon, is Brianna McGuckin. She is our guest on this episode, yes. <laughs> um, Beat me she, to it. <laughs> she comes to mind. Um, you know, she came in with a pretty clear idea for the kind of novel that she wanted to write, and that evolved while she was in the program, but it ultimately, you know, her thesis led to the novel that she ended up publishing. Um, Eric Ofgang. Um, who went through the MFA program and is now a mentor in the program. Um, I believe the thesis that he wrote for uh, the MFA program evolved into his first book or part of his first book. Um, I'm trying to think who else offhand. Um, I mean, we've had poets go through the program and publish their manuscripts. Um, Layla Schlack, who recently graduated, um, is working on finalizing her novel manuscript, but she just recently- um, She got a book deal for a nonfiction book, right? Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. great. She's co-authoring a cookbook. Really so. great writer that's uh, part of the program here for, for sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, your own experience in an MFA program. What, what point were you at when you entered it? Um, what experience did you have as a writer? And how do you feel like you benefited from it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so when I came out of undergrad, um, I started working in publishing, kind of naively because I just thought like, well, that's the business side of writing, so I might as well spend some time there. And I got a job at Houghton Mifflin editing um, college textbooks, so trigonometry and psychology textbooks, which really <laughs> – Gosh. <laughs> which really wasn't – That just sounds like chalks, you know – fingernails scratching up against the chalkboard it was it was and yeah kind of like slowly that each day <laughs> <laughs> you just got to drag out that scratching um you know i learned a lot about just the publishing process and what kind of the different editors and designers and stuff do um but it really it just took a lot out of me like it started to make me kind of you know it took a lot out of my reading life i couldn't really do any kind of real reading on my own because I was spending so much time proofreading and editing and, you know, on a very sort of like micro level. Um, and so I kind of got burnt out on it and I, di I didn't want to do it anymore. I moved to a cookbook publisher, which was better and a little bit more fun, but it was still the same kind of steps along the way. Um, so I started volunteering, uh, teaching uh, creative writing in some of the correctional facilities in Boston. And through that, I got connected with uh, Penn, the Penn organization, which is a great literary organization. And then from there, I I knew I wanted to, f it's kind of how I approached my whole college career. It was just like, I enjoyed this. Let me see how far I can follow that. I enjoyed this. Let me see how far I can follow that. So after I graduated undergrad, I was kind of like, well, where else can I study writing? What else can I do with it? And one of my mentors, uh, Richard Hoffman, introduced me to uh, Stone Coast's MFA program at the University of Southern Maine, and that's a low residency program. And it really just felt like the first time like I had a community that I connected with, and I felt like I had like a real solid group of friends and a real solid group of writers who were supportive and challenging each other. And 
um, it was kind of that like immersive experience that like I had read about in some writers' biographies of just like being in some kind of like you know intense literary community where people are just kind of all doing the same things and kind of speaking that same writer language. Um, Which I think is very important. Yeah, I think a lot of writers get discouraged when they don't have that dialogue and that. Um, yeah. Had you had you published anything at that point in your life? Had you ever published a? No, I mean I think maybe in some like student journals and things like that, but um, no, at that point it was really just the work that I'd done in my undergrad and no no real publications. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so trying to recall. Um, <laughs> it's I was, tough after a while, right? <laughs> For yeah. real. I was... Um, they call me the uncle around here. <laughs> Let's see, how old was I? 2000... I guess I was in my, like, early, maybe 24, 25-ish. Wow. Yeah. Um, and again, I was probably on the younger side of my MFA program, but we had folks just like our program here who were, you know, all different points in their life, all different careers. Um, so you'd be in a room full of writers and you wouldn't really know like who's faculty, who's not. Like we're <laughs> all just kind of all over the map, you know? And I love that feeling at our residencies too, where it's like, you know, you're talking with, you'll be talking with this visiting writer who, you know, won the National Book Award and not realize it halfway through because <laughs> no. you may not be familiar. And then you're talking with another student who, you know, I'm thinking of this one student, Mark, who was a global epidemiologist for his whole career. And now he's writing these kind of like spy thriller medical. Yes, Mark. Uh, Grabowski. Grabowski. Yeah. Very uh, underrated writer, too. I think it, just like a little bit of formatting, those could be actual products. There, Some of his stuff is great. My, I really enjoy Mark Grabowski. Really uh, a really cool guy that I've met through the program here. Tell me, um, you're still a writer. You publish short fiction quite often. I think you occasionally write an essay um, now and again. How much does working in this type of environment um, kind of harness or, or, or foster the writer in you? Mm. You know, it's a balance, like like everything else with writing it's a balance you know i think um i think i get a lot out of the conversations that i have with students in terms of you know their work and what they're reading and sharing ideas and that kind of gets me gets a different side of my writer brain charged up um there are times too where it feels i don't know it can sometimes feel like if if all of your energy is focused in one area around writing or, or literature, it can kind of feel like sometimes you just want to break from it, you know? So that's where sometimes it gets a little hard when, like, everything in your life is kind of aligned along your interest of writing. Right. It can feel like, you know what, I just want to go, you know, paint a house or go running or something. <laughs> and that's why I think a lot of writers have that. There's a, lot, a lot of craft books talk about that balance of, like, physical exertion and you know, intellectual exertion. And I think that's because, like, you need that balance or you need that time to kind of get outside of yourself. So there's, you know, um, but I really love the sort of, like, cyclical schedule of 
of academia, where it's kind of like very intense moments, and then you kind of have moments where you can kind of go back into your hole and work again, and then you kind of come back out again. So um, I think this that dynamic suits my personality and my interests. Which it does sound nice. I I wanted to talk just a little bit about my own experience in the MFA, just a, in a sense that I don't know if I would have gotten as much out of it as I am getting had I entered the program at 25. Everybody's different. Mm -hmm. At 25, uh, I was kind of already a working writer, and I don't mean... Um, it wouldn't have even killed my stride or anything, but I think that I I probably thought I knew everything then. <laughs> and I'm glad I did get to it in my later 30s now where it's like I'm just so much... Um, I am just so much more open to learning than I think I was at 25. I think that I was very caught up in my career and, and um, kind of the vertical... Uh, journey that we take, right? We're supposed to be on uh, career-wise and, and for your job, but um, I think I think that there are some students that are probably, despite that, I think that there are some students that are probably ready at 25 mm -hmm. that have great ideas, um, that know what type of genres they work in. A lot of those will be the, the, the advanced ones, the early starters, right? But what do, you, what do you think? Do you see success on both sides? Do you see do you see uh, it's harder for the older people just because of the way the world gets and, you know, the cost of living and all the other things? Or w what do you think about mm. it? And I'm sure this is a tough question for you to answer. No, no, it's a good one, though. I think it, you know, like a lot of <laughs> like a lot of advice around writing, it's, you know, it depends. I think um, I think, like you said, some folks come in with a very clear sense early on of what they want to do and they have that focus. Um, I know speaking for myself, I probably went to grad school because I didn't really know what else to do. <laughs> and that kind of worked out for me. You know, I, I just knew, and I give this advice to students too. It's like, if you were drawn to writing or you're drawn to reading, like follow it, right? So if it's leading you to an MFA program, you know, kind of organically, then great, then follow that. If it's leading you to go travel for a year and you have the means to do that, maybe go do that instead. Um, I just felt like, if there's if there are more doors labeled writing that I haven't gone through yet, let me keep trying to go through right. those doors, you know? That's a great way to look at it, especially from my own experience, sure. Yeah, and I think, you know, MFA programs, as you know, they, uh, they get a lot of criticism about whether or not they're necessary, and I feel like that, that argument is kind of beside the point because it's, it, it's necessary to each individual person in different ways. It can be necessary to each person in each individual way. So, you know, if you're looking for a community, I, I say this to students too, like you don't need an MFA. You could go like you were doing. I mean, you could easily continue to write on your own. But if you feel like you're missing a community, if you feel like you need some sort of networking opportunities, connections, you need the structure that we provide to give your writing the attention that you haven't given it in a while. Um, those are all good reasons to go. Some folks know that early on in their 20s. Um, you know, I can, I think the other part is like, we ask for a personal statement in the application and you can tell in that personal statement whether or not the student has, an, has a sense of why they want to do it, you know. 
Um, and it can be a very sometimes it's one or two lines where I'm like, okay, like I see that. That's why you want to do it. Where it's like something aspirational, some sort of like, you know, I've been working on this for a while, and I really need to do this and this, and that kind of direction. I think um, that usually shines through in the personal statement, and it can get, you know, there are just different challenges for students as they get older too. You know, challenges and opportunities of like it may be harder to travel, but you might have more time. So you might be able to focus on your work independently, but coming to residency might pose more challenges or something like that. Um, you might have more resources, you know, you're, maybe you're um, in a good spot financially retired, you know, that, and you have the time. I know a lot of folks come into the program and say, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably not your traditional student. And I always say that's good because we don't have any traditional right. students. Right, I think you know? that that's the thing. You know, so, um, I've had people who have worked their entire careers as, you know, restaurant owners or whatever. And then they're like, you know what, but I always wanted to write. And now, <laughs> and now I have the time to do it. So I really, and I know this may not be the most satisfying answer, but it, it's really, um, it really depends on where that individual writer is at in their life. No, you know? I, I, I think it's true. And I, um, just to kind of add to what you said about, you know, going through doors related to writing where there might be writing behind them. You know, um, just for me, my own my own career. I was actually listening to an interview with Ace Atkins today, who writes a lot of the uh, he writes a lot of the Spencer series uh, by Robert B. Parker's. Uh, he's kind of taken over for him, and you know, he started out as a journalist, and now he's juggling novels that are like you know he's doing two different novel series, and you know, one takes place in the South, and one takes place in Boston, and and I think. Um, there's always doors to go through when you're a writer. There's always ways to get better. What I've what I've learned is that there were just so many little things that I was out of practice of or that I knew at one point that I just hadn't had that conversation in a long time. Um, mm. Speaking, you know, specifically like working with people like Eric and yourself, uh, Eric Offgang, that is, and, and yourself, uh, it's kind of made me aware of certain things that were probably bad habits for a long time. Even though I was a working writer, I was like, wow, this is probably a bad habit of mine that um, I have to break. And uh, another thing is, is <clears throat> just for me, um, again, maybe not mo the most successful writer, but certainly one who's invested a lot of time in, in trying to be good at it, I guess, was that like all my favorite writers came through academia at some point or another. I mean, Raymond Carver, uh, you know, he was a janitor and all <laughs> this, but in the end, he was a teacher. Uh, Robert B. Parker, uh, he actually had a doctorate in crime fiction and he left the tenured position after a while just to focus because he was doing two books a year. You know what I mean? It's hard to teach and do two books a year. But yeah. uh, just it, it, it made sense for me and I'm so grateful I did it. Uh, you know, obviously as maybe not the oldest student in the program, but I'm glad I didn't do it when I was 25. I'm glad I did it at my age. And I think that I see so many students in our program that at 25, they're so much, they have such a better command of language than I ever did. And they have, uh, uh, some of them are really well read. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's really been a great experience for me. What's your advice when, I, I you know, I think we had a little bit of a different introduction to each other because I was coming just with all this professional experience and wondering my 
my route to the MFA, something I always wanted to do. But what's kind of your advice when somebody is entering the program with very little experience writing? Uh, is there any specific line you go to? Yeah. I mean, I'll often talk to students about, you know, getting the most out of, especially that first residency. You know, we, students, you know, before they come to their first semester, they attend a residency right before. So if they're starting in the fall, they'll attend the August residency. And that can be overwhelming for students because it's, you know, especially if you're more or less a solitary writer um, and haven't been part of a community in a while, you suddenly come into a place where there's 40, 50 people and everybody's, you know, jazzed up about their ideas and it's, um, it can be a lot. But I always recommend to all students, but especially students who have been outside of that world for a while or never in that world, um, to really just immerse yourself as much as possible and spend time, you know, say yes to everything pretty much. Like go out to dinners with people when they, you know, are making a plan to do that or stick around after a reading and talk to an author or ask questions and things like that. Like really kind of Again, that idea of like if there's another path, another door, another opportunity to do something that will feed your writing, like just do it. Don't overthink it, you know. Um, and I, I've seen so many students grow so quickly in that week that we often talk about it as like as if that week is a semester, you know, by like if Sunday is the first day of, of the semester, Wednesday is like midterm. And by the time we get to the end of the week, we feel like we've been through a whole semester together. Um, and I think that's because these connections and relationships form so quickly in those in those residencies. Something I wanted to talk about a, a little bit is just how, you know, the the MFA program for me it seems like a way, especially for people that don't have as much experience. I have zero, um, I have zero experience writing a book. I have zero, none. Um, uh, but I have many years of writing nonfiction articles, and I realized I it took me about a semester and a half to realize there's almost no correlation. <laughs> um, there's almost there really isn't. You know, the whole tone of the thing is different, and I understand now why so many really good magazine writers don't have any books. Mm. Uh, I don't want to name names because maybe, <laughs> maybe maybe they'll be offended, but none not not as many as you think. Like there's still a guy, there's still people who specialize in a 10,000 word story and have no books. Yeah. yeah. Uh, th they're called dinosaurs. But <laughs> but the point that I think I'm trying to make here is that I am learning in this program how to write a professional manuscript, even if I'm not being kind of directly instructed, I'm coming, I believe I'm coming to the right conclusions based on my, my classwork and my coursework. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's something I really got out of it. What about people who aren't interested in writing books? I don't really know how much of the program is geared towards maybe journalism or maybe copywriting and stuff. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk about that briefly? Or? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that's one of the nice things about our program is that we're so welcoming to all different genres. So we've had students who, they're not interested in book-length manuscripts. They want to, you know, continue to write feature articles or they're writing um, 
you know, a collection of personal essays, and they're, you know, trying to get those published individually along the way. Um, same deal with poetry. Um, students might ultimately put together a collection of poems, but in the meantime, they're, they're doing that work individually. Um, we've had playwrights go through the program, and so they're, they may not be thinking about, you know, a final manuscript in, or just a final manuscript, but they're also thinking about how do I get this play produced and how can I get it, you know, uh, actually performed. So, um, you know, I'm thinking back to what you said about having all that sort of real world professional experience um, and how a lot of, we've had journalists who've, you know, worked for 20, 30 years, come through the program, and that first semester, they're kind of, you know, I've had a lot of those conversations of like, do I really need this? You know, do I really need to do this? And then they make that move from, say, reporting to, uh, you know, I'm thinking of Lisa, Lisa Peterson, who went through the program, and her kind of blending of true crime and memoir. And that's, it was much different than her journalism work, because it was more personal, and it was a longer piece. And you're right. I mean, that's a big that's a big shift. So I think one of the things we focus on a lot in the program is if you want to move from one genre to the next or one form to the next, like we will pair you with a mentor who has done that before or who can help you make that sort of connection between those genres that might feel totally separate to you, you know. Um, so I think it's so funny because I think no matter what experience people come in with, they find a totally different path and a totally different set of skills by the time they get to the end of the program. And like for someone like you, it might be, all right, how do I move from feature article to long form narrative? Um, we might have poets who come into the program who, you know, really want to write fiction. And so they're moving from a much tighter condensed form to something that's more, perhaps more narrative driven or, or a little bit longer. Um, and so I think it's one of the reasons why we kind of lump everybody together in some classes where it's like you're going to have to read poets' work. You're going to have to read, you know, pieces of technical writing or, you know, somebody's grant proposal or, you know, the beginning of someone's manuscript, uh, their novel manuscript. And then you get used to just responding to all different types of work and learning what you can use from that. You know, like how can a fiction writer influence a grant writer, right? So this fiction writer is really good with telling a narrative. And in that grant proposal, you're going to have to tell a narrative too. You may know all the research and the reasons why you're writing that grant, but if you can't tell that story of that grant, it's probably not going to get accepted, right? Yeah. So um, that's the fascinating, one of the fascinating things for me is to see the way that that kind of like cross-pollination goes on within the program. Um, and I've, I've learned a ton. You know, one of the things that really excited me coming here was, you know, we have mystery writers and crime novelists and romance writers and fantasy writers and all the stuff that, you know, at one point in time, you know, you mentioned Raymond Carver. I, was, I still am a big Raymond Carver fan, but I think for a while I had a very limited limited view of of the literature I wanted to read and the literature I wanted to emulate. Um and then when I came here, I was like, oh, no, like I, I used to be into crime fiction. I used to do I used to read these things, right, you yeah. know, and I'm like, and here are all these contemporary people doing it that I was just not a part of their community because I was, you know, so hyper focused on 
you know, dirty realists and stuff like that, you know, which like, you know, there's there's certain rites of passage you go through as a writer, you know, certain think, authors you spend a lot of time with. I think that 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 for sure kind of encompasses some of my experience. Um, I am writing a nonfiction book in the part. I'm trying my hardest to write this nonfiction. You are. Book. You are. I, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm definitely writing it. Um, took me through like now I'm on my third semester now, but I'm definitely I'm solidly writing it now. I mean, I was writing it before, but now I'm writing a new version of it. But um, one of the most fun parts for me is being able to play around with some of the fiction stuff that I just, I would have never, um, I don't even want to say the time. You have to get yourself in a situation where if you're a serious writer and you're going to write fiction, you have to get yourself in a situation where it can be improved, I think. And... I mean, I, I may never publish a fictional story. It, 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 it certainly is my goal. But I've definitely connected with so many more books, uh, stuff that I wanted to read, stuff that I didn't even know about. Um, uh, I, I've brought him up a few times already in this little segment here. But Robert B. Parker is somebody that I've just, I've, I've gone right in on him. You know what I mean? And I'm looking at his history and his background. I mean, there's, you know, there's simple stories, but they're gripping, you know, and um, tomorrow night I'll be going to see, uh, I'll be going to see Liam Neeson as Philip Marlowe in the new Marlowe, you know, in the new mo movie, uh, which is based on The Little Sister, I believe, which is one of Raymond Chandler's books. Mm. And like, you know, just seeing the, just seeing the trailers for that, and I know it's going to be nothing like the book, you know, just seeing the trailers for that has gotten me uh, right, right kind of back into like studying Raymond <laughs> Chandler again. So, sure. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that writing is all about inspiration. I, I also think, um, again, you know, I, I've only enjoyed a certain level of success, but I can tell you that I've definitely done it enough to get burnt out on certain things. Yeah. And I think it's all about that personal invention and reinvention, and uh, you know, some of even some of the people we have coming up on this show, Peter Blauner, for example. You know, I'm just so impressed by his new book, where it's this, you know, other than the filming of the Ten Commandments and a little bit of the history of the production, it's a t entirely invented story, mm -hmm. and that that's impressive to me. And uh, I know how hard it is to do a good nonfiction book because of all the reporting you have to put in, but it would be nice to not leave my house and write a really good, <laughs> really good book at some point. Yeah, Anthony, before we let you go today, I am going to put you on the spot, but I did, I did, I did warn you. Can you tell us a little bit about a book you would recommend to our audience? Yeah, I just finished this memoir called Predator by Ander Monson, and it's a fascinating book just basically about this guy's obsession with the movie predator his deep <laughs> deep obsession with the movie predator and how he uses it as the springboard for masculinity gun violence um just kind of it's actually it's gotten me back into writing personal essay after a long time because it's such a meandering malleable welcoming form and he kind of reminded me of it um it's called Predator by Ander Monson. What's what there is if you could go through it like the gist of the book? Is it go into the production or just the the the, the storyline of the book uh, the, I mean, of the movie? I mean everything. Like there's a point. It basically the the book is structured around his 147th viewing of the film, and <laughs> he by the by you know page 50 he's going through it frame by frame. So he's 
forcing you to watch this movie frame by frame. And probably what the most amazing part is, is it's not alienating. Like the best recommendation about the book came from Julie Marie Wade, who won our Housatonic Book Award in nonfiction through the MFA program. She was like, I haven't even seen the movie and I love this book. And so it's a book where, I don't know, he just really leans into his obsession. Um, And even on the back of the book where it says, you know, the genre of the book, it says memoir slash obsession. I think it's memoir movie slash obsession. (laughs) This reminds me of a book that was referred to us by one of our local readers, um, Ron Evans, who's one of the most prolific readers in the Danbury area. He's a Stephen King constant reader, which means that he's up, he's totally up to date on every Stephen King uh, book. Uh, it's called Sackhead, and it's about a sequel to Friday the 13th that was shot in, I believe it was Kent, here right here in Connecticut. Really? Yeah, and uh, another very similar dive into uh, a classic horror movie that maybe some people kind of... Uh, would have skipped over very quickly. So I, yeah. I love I, that's a great that's a great recommendation. I love what was the author's name again? Uh, Ander, I believe his last name is Monson M O N S O N. Is that book published by? Uh, it's published by uh, Gray Wolf. Okay, wow. Yeah, it's a pretty well known publisher for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, um, Anthony. Thank you mo- so much for joining us on the Public Reading Club on WXEI ninety one point seven in Danbury. Uh, this show will be archived on all the podcast platforms soon. Um, we are a little behind on that, but everything will be up and running soon. Anthony, is there anything else you want the readers? Uh, obviously, you know, uh, 91.7 goes throughout the Danbury area. Any, anything you want the r- listeners to know about the MFA program? Yeah, I just want to say, you know, we it's such a strong, welcoming community that's, you know, right in the heart of Danbury, and there's a, a really strong writing community, you know, right here. There really and, is. And I feel like, you know, check us out, come to our events. We're always, um, you know, I'm a big believer in community partnerships, so I'm always reaching out to, you know, movie theaters, bookstores, different organizations to do events and readings and things. So, um, yeah. Make sure we're on on your radar because we're doing some cool stuff. No, that that would be really great. I personally feel that this is a great area to write in. It's quiet. There aren't too many distractions. The university here is we, – we have so many great facilities and stuff here that I, I really do wish people would take more advantage. But, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have you back on at some point for sure. <laughs> sounds good. Thanks for having me. One in four women and one in ten men experience sexual violence – physical violence, and or stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. The Center for Empowerment and Education has a 24-7 hotline for those who are experiencing or have experienced domestic abuse in the northern Fairfield and southern Litchfield County areas. If you are in need of support, please call 203-731-5206. Again, the number for the hotline is 203-731-5206. Welcome back to WXCI 91.7 Danbury and streaming live on WXCI.org. Our guest today on the Public Reading Club is WestCon MFA alumnist Brianna McGuckin. Her book is On Good Authority, and it's published by Thomas and Mercer. Brianna, thank you for making the long drive here today. To, thank you for having me. It's great to have you at, at, at WXCI. You are an alumnus of WestCon 
And uh, you are a very inspiring writer since we met within the program. And I always look forward to hearing about your approach to writing and kind of your passion for it. And there's also a lot of stuff that you talk about that's a little over my head. So I catch, <laughs> I, I attempt to catch up. Um, Brianna, tell me a little bit about um, what drew you towards a story like this? What, what drew you towards this, this kind of story where um, I think there's a lot of desire and boundaries and stuff like that in the book? Yeah. Um, so before I answer that, I'll just give the very general pitch for what the plot is so that we kind of know what we're talking about. Um, I say that On Good Authority is a Victorian Gothic romantic suspense in which a lady's maid much must teach a bad master the difference between servitude and surrender while confronting a dark desire for the footman along the way. Um, and it is very much, uh, like you said, a, a dark, desirous story full of longing. Um, and the reason I wrote it, the thing I was trying to get at when I wrote it, um, was... What draws people to a BDSM relationship in particular? And when I say that, I don't mean that it's a, a graphically sexual or kinky book. I, I call it coming-of-age kinky because I wanted to focus on how it is that someone could find something like that cathartic. Um, because I think when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, um, there was a lot of conflation of maybe what BDSM is with what abuse is um, in pop culture. And I saw that with um, people's reactions to the book. And I also saw that um, at in, in spaces for BDSM folks where new people were coming along and they had a very misguided idea of what what BDSM actually was. Um, so the way that it was being talked about in, in popular culture was just really kind of doing a disservice both to abuse survivors and to um, responsible members of the BDSM community who do uh, center consent. So I wanted to write this story about um, this power dynamic between this master of this Victorian house and his lady's maid and this kind of abuse of power and contrast it with this relationship between the ladies' maid and the footman, which is also built on differing power dynamics, but it's completely um, generated by them, and it's something that they're entering into together, and that they have boundaries around that kind of honor each other. So I wanted to look at those two different kinds of relationships side by side. One of the things I think I'm most impressed with when I read it is there's not a lot of gratuitous kind of activity in their sex i believe I, spoiler alert i believe one of the sex scenes takes place behind a door right you don't necessarily see everything yeah there's maybe two sentences of what you would call sex on the page <laughs> and th that's a very conscious decision when you're making uh, you're writing a book like this what what made you uh inclined to that choice well I think one of those things that we don't really think about in pop culture about BDSM, I think when we think about it, um, generally we think whips, chains, um, you know, like it's all these props. It's the idea of a dungeon, right? Um, but actually, 
the where BDSM starts is is emotional and it's about it's really nerdy sex, honestly. It's it's people role playing um, these parts that they wouldn't normally have. It's and essentially larping sex. Yes, yeah. exactly. So it's primarily um, it's primarily emotional, and it's primarily um, I would go so far as to call it therapeutic. That and and it's all planned. It really is like theater. It's okay before we do this. Are you okay with this, this, and this? What if what if this, can we, um, you know, can I say this or what, what can't I say to you when I do this? And so it's all planned and it's built on trust. And so when you're doing it, you're also, um, you're either taking control, which is something that you may not normally get to do in your life, or you're giving up control, which it might not be something that you normally get to do in your life. Um, for me personally, I'm a control freak in my life. And uh, I can't stand it when I don't know what's what's going to happen next or if I haven't planned for every eventuality. So something like um, a scene, it's I know that I can totally relax, right? Because I've planned this all out with this other person and I trust them. And so focusing on the emotional, focusing on the build of that trust, the build of that relationship and the kind of meeting each other's opposite needs rather than you know, what are the props? What's the the quintessential sexiness of BDSM that everyone already knows? My question to you is, and I don't know how you feel about this, but what made you take something that I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say BDSM is something that's considered more of a modern type of thing, modern topic, and set it in this Victorian world? I, 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 I genuinely wonder... Uh, and I mean this uh, sincerely. I generally wonder what your what a book by you would be like now in like kind of modern times. Um, well, I have a couple answers to that. One is that the Victorians were pretty kinky. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that uh, if you think about where our if you look at sexuality and culture compared to culture overall the more um, puritanistic we demand that people are in their public life, the weirder they're, they're bound to get once they can shut the door. Right. And I think that that's definitely the case with the Victorians where there Look were Look at rules. George Santos. <laughs> <laughs> there were rules for everything that, you know, um, a woman showing an ankle was scandalous or that she had to have her kid gloves on at the dinner table until it was literally time to touch food because because fingers were scandalous so if you're looking at like that level of um repression then of course the sexually liberated among them not all of them of course but you know there's always going to be subcultures and whatever there were definitely um some some kinky things going on um and then the other answer i have for that is just that the power dynamics are so strong in the Victorian era that there really is this, um, for example, if you were a servant in a Victorian house and you happened to be cleaning when the mistress or the master was walking by, you're up in the above stairs, right? You're in their space, you're cleaning their house, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, but they're walking by and you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't be seen. You are gross, right? So. When they walk by, you're instructed to face the corner and hunch down wow. and just wait until they're gone. So 
things like that. It's such a clear difference between who has the power and who doesn't. A lot about class. Yes. And it's so over that I, it just felt like, okay, I can take these issues with power dynamics that we have now and really look at them in this era because they're so obvious all the time. You describe, uh, I believe it's you who describes the book as low stairs Victorian. Um, can you kind of just explain what the downstairs servants and the workhouse uh, world that's such a big part of this book is like for readers who might uh, not be that familiar? Yes. So below stairs just means um, the servants' quarters as opposed to the main house. So you have below stairs, which is where the servants eat and rest and clean the silverware and whatnot when they're, you know, when it's not actually being put back in the drawers. Uh, and then there's above stairs, which is the actual house. Um, certain servants go above stairs, certain servants don't. Um, typically the ladies maid, the footman, and the butler are above stairs because they're assisting the family with uh, social gatherings. Um, and then the workhouse is just a whole different um, kettle of fish. I, I don't know. Um, what can I tell you about workhouses in, in Victorian London other than um, the view on charity was that while it should be given, it should not be pleasant because the idea was that if you were too kind to the poor, then everyone would just stop being productive and want to be poor, which is something I a ridiculous idea that I also address in the novel briefly, um, but it was definitely the guidance behind kind of the conditions. Um, as a child, Marion sleeps on a floor. Um, she's not fed well at all. She's made to work as an 11-year-old. It's, it's wild. What was the first thing you did when you decided that you were going to pursue this story as a book? Um, the first thing that I did, the first scene that I wrote, was um, this first game that uh, Marion plays as a child with her fellow workhouse inmate, Valentine, who will grow up to be the aforementioned footman in the house. Um, the first game that they play where what they're doing is effectively reenacting their parents' respective arrests. Uh, that brought them to the workhouse. And I was just really interested in um, that thing that I think we all do as children where we experience something that's out of our control or we don't fully understand and we fixate on it and either pretend it out on our own or pretend it out with our friends, um, not because we are morbid, but because if you play it out again and again and again, you're maybe building a sense of control over your situation um, that wasn't very pleasant at all uh, and and kind of changing the dynamic there by building that control. Um, and I'm sure you can see how that kind of lends itself into growing up into being a kinky human, right? Is um, So I'm trying to show, even when they're young, um, here is the comfort in in pretend, right? Even when right. it's even when it's something that's unpleasant in real life, like watching your parent get arrested, right? So the first scene that I wrote was that was them playing that game 
um, as kids where uh, Valentine is the arresting officer and Marion is this woman who's wronged her children being arrested and they're having this conversation as he's quote unquote arresting her about how she should have done better by her kids. I was just very fascinated by the idea of one of those games where for an outsider it looks almost cruel but these kids are friends and they're helping each other process something that happened to them. It's definitely an interesting part of the book, and I read that a couple of times over um, when I went through it. I wanted to ask you, um, you did you bring this book into the WestCon program? Was this where you started to write it here, on, here at WestCon? Um, I, yeah, I started it. So I was working on a different book um, when I was working with my mentor at the time, and he said, I don't think that this is a novel. Do you have anything else that you're working on? And I had written just that one scene, that one game, and maybe a couple paragraphs more. And I sent that to him, and he said, yeah, I think this is your thesis. Wow. Um, so we went from there. And that. so I switched um, projects. I think that was in my second or third semester that we wow. switched. Yeah. And I, I didn't have a full draft I was going into my f penultimate semester with my mentor with like 30,000 words. And she said, um, it was Ann Westrick for anyone who's in the MFA program listening. Mm -hmm. And she heard that I had 30,000 words. And she said, Brianna, I would really prefer that we work on a full draft when you come in next month. So I wrote um, over 50,000 words in 30 days, just oh. in a panic. <laughs> I was just about to ask you, like, what, what what was the process of writing this for you? Were you writing every day? Were you going on retreats? You know, some people rent an apartment and they never come out, you know? Um, it was a lot of crying that month. <laughs> <laughs> just a lot of frustrated weeping um, as I got things very wrong because I was on such a tight, I needed to have um, 2,000 words down a day to be happy with myself for that for that month and sometimes I would realize that a thousand of them were just wrong just in the wrong direction and I would just cry um, if I had not been married at the time I don't know what what I would have done um, I I would not have eaten or had any hydration at all if not for my husband being like maybe you should stand up for just a second also here's some soup I'm gonna back away now <laughs> <laughs> T tell me a little bit about, because um, a lot of writers need to hear this, how much did the book change? So much. Um, that has been the biggest lesson that I learned from finishing a project, because I'm a person who is obsessed with line editing and getting the words right. I love the beauty of a sentence, right? But there's just no sense in fixating on perfecting a sentence in a paragraph on a page that might not survive, just might not survive um, at any stage earlier than, you know, your second or third draft. Um, I, I think mean, that's really good advice. I think that's really good advice, to be honest. Yeah, and it's hard to follow because I really do. I love language, and there's a time for that. But the time for it, the time for fixating on it is later. Is at the end of the draft. Yeah, yeah, or a couple drafts down the line because you don't know what's going to shift plot-wise and what that's going to mean for whether you move something around or whether you don't need it at all. Um, so, yeah, all told... Um, I think on good authority probably went through seven drafts before it was 
picked up by my publisher, and after that it went through one more developmental draft, one more line edit, and then copy edits and so on. You are a writer that is very well read. You've, you're so well read, you're a librarian, literally. <laughs> um, when did you decide that the book was done? I thought it was done many times, and I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Other people will tell you. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, Gwen Jones asked us that at a, a workshop at the one of the residencies one time. When When is a book done? And I said, when you think it's done. And she said, when it's on the shelf. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's that's a good line. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought it was done many times, and I was wrong. When I when it got picked up by my editor for the publishing house, they wanted me to start in a totally different place. Uh, the book used to start in the workhouse and go chronologically forward. Now it starts in Valorize, and we get flashbacks. Um, so I I really thought I was done, and I really was not. Um, They'll tell you. They'll tell you when you're done. <laughs> tell me, what books inspired you as you wrote this one? Definitely Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. And Rebecca was actually what taught me what genre I wrote. Because I knew I didn't write fantasy, but I knew that I wasn't writing something that was um, mundane either. Um, I didn't understand what that was. I had never heard the term gothic before. And then I read Rebecca, and I was just like, oh, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. A story that is not supernatural, but is so vividly rendered um, with such a suggestion of the supernatural that it doesn't matter that it's not actually there. Um, it feels like it's there. That was very um, inspirational. Jane Eyre was very inspirational. It, When I say it originally followed... Um, the workhouse chronologically into going to Valor Rise, that was kind of an homage to Jane Eyre going to Lowood School before she goes to work at Thornfield Hall. Um, you know, that thread kind of got lost because we changed the way that the, the chronology goes of the story, but definitely an inspiration. Um, and Sarah Waters, in terms of a modern author who I really admire and um, you know, would be honored to be counted among. She just does such wonderful um, historical suspense that's got that same kind of richness to it. it. Part two of that question, how did you turn to those books while you were writing, literally open them up? And is that something you suggest doing? Or is it something you did at all? You say, hey, I'm inspired by these books. I want to write a book similar to it. Did you ever open them up and say, okay, um, did you look to them for that type of direct inspiration? No, I, I see, I, for me, it's like inhale, exhale, breathing. You're either reading, inhaling, or you're writing, exhaling. You can't do both at once, or I can't. Um, you know, far be it for me to dictate anyone else's process, but I can only do one at a time. Um, and that's why, you know, I have so many friends who have had books come out in the last year and I have I hadn't been able to read them right away because I'm just like, ah, I'm writing. I'll get to it, but oh no. Um, yeah. Last two questions I have for you, Brianna, and I want to thank you for coming on WXCI's Public Reading Club. 
I want to ask you, how how tightly do you cling to um, the genre? Do, 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 do you wear that like somebody wears a uniform, or do you feel like you'd love to switch it up at some point? I would love to switch it up. Um, I was originally working on a um, kind of inverted Little Mermaid retelling um, <laughs> <laughs> um, that involves disability rep. I have cerebral palsy, and uh, I always really related to the Little Mermaid story for reasons that I think other people maybe don't. Um, so that's on my on my horizon. I had to kind of swerve left. I'm working on a another um, romantic suspense right now. Um, working title to be determined, um, but it's about this woman, former prostitute, who cross-dresses her way into Trinity College, Dublin, and uh, goes to work for her professor as part of her scholarship, and she's, you know, terrified, living in terror of him finding out her secret because he could either turn her in, in or use her for it. And of course he does find out, but he does not turn her in. And that's kind of the, the launch of our story. So I have that going, but I also have, um, I have a Beauty and the Beast retelling that I want to do. Um, so maybe not too far from romantic suspense, but I think I want to dabble into other speculative fiction. Last question. Somebody told us a little birdie uh, said that you found your agent on Twitter. <laughs> Is that true? Um, yes and no. So after WestCon's program, I entered into Pitch Wars, which is unfortunately now defunct. Um, but it was a program, very competitive program, where you would apply to be a mentee who would be mentored by a published author, and they would get hundreds of applications and just pick one mentee. And Elizabeth Little, who is a wonderful suspense author, um, she wrote Pretty as a Picture, um, She's she's wonderful. She picked me. She picked on good authority. We worked on it. And then at the end of that, we did there's an agent showcase where where people look at your work. Um, and just to talk about the difference between the current landscape of querying versus what that program allowed me to do. I think I queried for nine months. I queried uh, about 130 agents. Wow. I got one partial request, and then they rejected it two days later. I did this agent showcase through Pitch Wars after my mentorship with Elizabeth Little. It lasted three days, I think. I got 16 or 17 full draft requests from agents in that, that three days, and the agent who... Um, signed me was not even signed up for pitch wars he just saw my materials on the website and sought me out and uh asked for the draft and offered representation he was looking for projects <laughs> yeah he was out there fishing for for talent i guess yeah it was wild really wild brianna i want to thank you so much for joining us on the public reading club it's great to have such a talented writer the book is on good authority the writer is brianna una mcguckin it's out now from thomas and mercer Hi, I'm Bob Barker, and this is my friend Benny. Before you buy cosmetics, personal care, or household products, you be sure they have not been tested on animals. Everything from floor cleaner to shampoo is poured into animals' eyes and down their throats. They suffer intensely. Some even go blind. The price is never right for products tested on animals. 
Visit PETA.org for a list of cruelty-free companies. It was really great having Anthony Dieras and Brianna McGuckin on uh, Public Reading Club. This was just a great episode full of, you know, really cool um, conversations about writing, I felt, and uh, really relevant to what we're doing here in the West Con community. If you're interested in hearing more about the MFA program here at West Con, if you're interested in writing uh, and you want to kind of go higher than the student level, Anthony Dieras is a great resource and he's really open to talking to people about their projects and, you know, one way or another, he always believes that we can help somebody here uh, with writing something uh, if they came to school at WestCon, but he's a great resource either way. So um, he's highly available on Instagram and uh, all the other places and uh, LinkedIn as well. So Anthony Dieras, um, it was great having him on today. And of course, Brianna McGuckin, she's one of really the most brilliant writers we have here uh, coming out of the MFA program. And I just love to get all of her ideas uh, and, and, and kind of play with them in my mind when it comes to writing, because even though we work in different genres, uh, I, I think it's the stuff that you learn from other artists and other writers uh, that don't, necessarily cross over into your type of work that actually help you improve in, in in some ways so it was great having brianna on as a really fantastic guest for us um we're coming to the end of the program here but i i did promise that every week we would deliver book recommendations and i didn't think we would get uh, an actual human being to send us a recommendation other than anthony diaris who gave us one earlier on the show live here in the WXCI studios. But I did get an email from a gentleman who's a writer uh, named Al Patron. I went to high school with him, and he heard about the Public Reading Club, and he heard about the opportunity to send us a book recommendation, and he did. So his uh, Al Patron wrote to us at thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com, which you can also do, to recommend the book Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control by Ryan Holiday. Usually I'm not into self-help slash empowerment books, but this is a totally different experience. During the beginning of the pandemic, which we're still in, I lost all focus because who knew what the hell was going to happen? This book served as a refreshing reminder that discipline, more than any trait, keeps me at ease. While I didn't learn anything new, I do revisit this book often because of the little nuggets that remind me to stay focused. Also, there's a Jay-Z quote in the book, and how can you go wrong with that? Al Patron. Thank you for being the very first book recommender in the history of Public Reading Club. And for that great distinction, I will send you a copy of Most Dope by Paul Cantor. And 
you will get a free book. So please respond to my email and send me your physical address. We are recording on Thursday, February 16th, and in a little while, I'll be going to the movie theater to see the new Marlowe movie uh, featuring Liam Neeson. And I wanted to take a minute to talk just about um, Philip Marlowe and this new movie. My dad, who passed away at the end of the summer, was just a big Philip Marlowe fan, and um, he loved those books. And uh, towards the end of his life, he reread them during the pandemic. And somewhere in the 90s, long after Raymond Chandler, the writer of the Philip Marlowe series, had died, the great writer who I mentioned on this show, Robert B. Parker, kind of took over the Raymond Chandler, uh, Philip Marlowe series and wrote a book called Poodle Springs that was later turned into uh, just an okay movie uh, on HBO with James Caan. And I remember telling my dad about this and he got really all caught up in this kind of idea. He didn't really, that wasn't his world to know that at some point this had happened. But when I told him about it, he dove right in. And he loved Philip Marlowe. And he went out seeking a DVD copy of the Poodle Springs movie that aired on HBO. And the problem was it was only released in Europe. And it was a Region 2 DVD. And my dad was damned uh, by the fact that he couldn't get the DVD to play and to see the James Caan movie where he portrayed Philip Marlowe. Um, it's funny now that Hollywood is taking another stab at it. It, it looks like they're turning Marlowe into an action star, um, which I honestly think is okay. Um, the audience now... Uh, they might want something like that. And if that reintroduces people to Raymond Chandler and the Philip Marlowe books, go ahead. There's a lot of old ideas in these pulpy crime novels. But there's also some gripping stories. And if that's what you're into, you really can't go wrong. Uh, There's a lot of ugly things that are disturbing or meant to get a rise out of people in literature. Um, but I'm going to recommend people read The Big Sleep because I hadn't really, I hadn't given it the, um, I guess you could say advanced reader's eye when I read it in college at my dad's suggestion. But now I just think it's, It's a story where the action starts right away and you can totally see the world that it's set in. So The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler is uh, the book I'm going to recommend. But I think that, you know, I'm recommending it because I'm proud to see or happy to see that um, somebody's trying again in Hollywood with uh, Philip Marlowe. And uh, I believe it's directed by Neil Jordan and it stars Liam Neeson. 
I think there's uh, Diane Kruger and Jessica Lang in there. And uh, I, I'm excited to see it tonight. And if you see the movie and you want to write us an email about what you thought about uh, Marlowe, well, do it. You know, it's uh, the public reading club at gmail.com. And that's our email address. And I, I think that these types of movies are, are great to kind of bring back because there's good stories that haven't been done. And I think that's one thing that's great about novels. When I read a novel, I'm, I'm seeing a movie that I couldn't possibly see unless it gets made. And sometimes the odds of that happening are so far. Um, this particular... Now, although this Philip Marlowe book was actually written by the Irish novelist John Banville, and it's not really getting too many good reviews anywhere, I just hope that it reignites interest in in Philip Marlowe and in Raymond Chandler's work. And there's a lot of people in that line um, who I think have great novels that could be adapted into good films. Um, like the proof is in the pudding with Lawrence Block's A Walk Among the Tombstones. It turned into a great film. Liam Neeson had a lot to do with that one as well. But I I think that there's uh, there are a lot of true stories and based on a true stories that I see, but I think there are a ton of good novels that Hollywood needs to give a chance. A, a ton of good a ton of good series that could be developed. I mean, you think about uh some of the novels that could be set in that Mad Men era um, or, you know, anything that already has an established brand like that, I think should be really valuable to Hollywood. You see it with all the Marvel and DC kind of kind of stuff. I really think that we should get back to some of these great crime writers and make good movies uh, based on their work. So those are my recommendations read raymond chandler's the big sleep and check out discipline is destiny uh by ryan holiday which was recommended by al patron thank you so much for joining us on wxei 91.7 from western connecticut state university in danbury connecticut this has been the second broadcast of Public Reading Club. We are available on all podcast platforms. And if you want to send us a book recommendation or anything else you want to talk about related to literature, a book you've read, there's an author that might be local to our station that would want to come on, send us an email at thepublicreadingclub at gmail.com. This is Matt Caputo signing off from the Public Reading Club on WXCI 91.7. The Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 in Danbury. It is hosted by Matt Caputo, produced by Pat Fournette and Matt Caputo.